Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations exploring the work and ideas of authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded live in front of an audience. I'm Aiden Flax-Clark, manager of public programs at the library and one of the many people who help put together the library's live events. Today's episode focuses on two recent books that reconsider the story of Emmett Till. If that name is unfamiliar or you only sort of remember it, here's a quick recap. In August 1955, a 14-year-old black boy from Chicago was abducted by a gang of white men while visiting his family in Mississippi. He was tortured and eventually murdered, his body dumped in a river with a cotton gin fan tied to his neck by barbed wire. The question is why? The white men said that Till had harassed one of their wives in the store where she was working, and in 1955, that was enough in certain parts of the country. It proved to be enough to even see his killers acquitted by an all-white jury, with more than a little help from police and prosecutors. The atrocity rattled the nation and helped fuel the modern civil rights movement. And while depravity and barbarity incited this chapter in our national history, another tale of bravery and genius unfolded in the response by activists and family, particularly Till's mother, Mamie, who refused to let the death of her son become another ignored murder of a black citizen. Instead, with great force of will and brilliance for organizing and communication, she turned the trial into a national moment, ensuring that sympathetic press were there to cover it and that civil rights activists before, during, and after the trial never forgot what happened. Two new books take on the Emmett Till story in radically different ways, and we were lucky to have both of the authors join us for an evening recently at the Stephen A. Schwartzman Building in Midtown Manhattan. Timothy Tyson is the author of The Blood of Emmett Till, the most comprehensive account of Till's murder, the killer's trial, and the particular context of race and civil rights in 1955 that shaped all of it. The book uses never-before-accessed material, including the transcripts of the trial, which had gone missing for something like 50 years, and Tyson's interview with Carolyn Bryant, the woman whom Till supposedly harassed and who essentially recanted her story to Tyson. That part of Tyson's book got a lot of notice in articles and reviews over the last couple weeks, and deservedly so, but truthfully the whole book is a revelation, not least for the ways in which it pinpoints how the events of 1955 in Mississippi continue to resonate today. Our other author was John Edgar Wideman, a two-time Penn Faulkner Award winner whose new book is Writing to Save a Life, The Lewis Till File, which was recently nominated for a National Book Critics Circle Award. Wideman's book is being described as his first work of nonfiction in 15 years, but as you'll hear him say during the conversation, the book is really neither fish nor fowl. It's truly a one-of-a-kind, unclassifiable work that is some blend of history, memoir, and fiction. It's inspired by the story of Lewis Till, Emmett's father, who was hanged for rape and murder by the U.S. Army in Italy 10 years before his son's death. The book moves with a strange fluidity between Lewis Till, Emmett Till, train stations, Mamie Till, army records departments, Weidemann's childhood, documentaries, and a whole lot more. Both Tyson's and Weidemann's books are remarkable pieces of writing that are indispensable in any library. And they were joined for the conversation by Nell Painter, the historian and artist whose own books are equally as indispensable. Nell is a professor emerita at Princeton, and she is perhaps best known for her most recent book, the 2011 New York Times bestseller, The History of White People. They had a powerful conversation, which took some surprising twists and turns and was at times disturbing and challenging. But a conversation about this terrible story can't really be anything else except difficult. If you like listening to this show and feel like you learned something, please leave us a review in iTunes. We appreciate the feedback, and it helps others find the show. All right, so let's go to Timothy Tyson, John Edgar Weidman, and Nell Painter, recorded live at the Stephen A. Schwartzman Building in Midtown Manhattan. <laughs> I'm Nell Painter, and I'm going to moderate. Um, and you've already you've already met our distinguished speakers and and. Um, authors, uh, Tim Tyson and John Weideman. 
So I'm going to say a few words, and then Tim Tyson is going to say a few words. And if John wants to say a few words after that, he will, and if he doesn't, he won't. Um, and then I will start with some questions for them to talk back and forth with. And then we'll have time for you to have questions. So you study up right now so you have some questions. So um, writing to save a life and the blood of Emmett Till are two contrasting works. And they're both passionate, um, but they're at different temperatures. They both um, present uh, as documentary works, though one is as art and one is as scholarship. One ranges geographically and chronologically, but without touching Mississippi. And the other is closely focused for the most part on the Mississippi Delta and Chicago in the 1950s. Both examine back then and right now, and both begin with the figure of lynched 14-year-old Emmett Till. Um, but one book moves very quickly to concentrate on his father, Lewis Till, while the other book stays in the 1950s with Emmett and his mother, Mamie Bradley. One book concentrates on the theme of fathers and sons, and the other begins with a wife and features the murdered son's mother as a passionate activist for human rights. John Edgar Wideman's investigation merges himself, the same age as Emmett Till, with young Till, and Wideman's father with Till's father, and all four of them with the figures of their enslaved Southern ancestors. This is nonfiction with fictional and autobiographical inflection. Timothy Tyson also pulls together back then with the right now in a heartfelt epilogue that bringing the struggle against white supremacy into the present time and citing Ferguson and Black Lives Matter by name. So two contrasting books converge nevertheless on the vivid, well, the murderous impact of social mores here, white supremacy, in individual lives in the form of lynching. And lynching is a term that both authors employ. Both authors are concerned with truth, what truths we can and cannot know, which change and do not change over time, and what truths get remembered and which are forgotten, perhaps because previously not widely known. And both books embed past truths in the present in individual and family subjectivity and American society as a whole. When I first started thinking about these two books last month, I was at the McDowell Colony in New Hampshire. At breakfast one morning, I mentioned Emmett Till and I met blank stares. Uh, people at the breakfast table, some of them did not recognize the name Emmett Till, and so they missed this evening's conjunction of personal investigation um, 
and as a work of history. So I had to deliver a history lesson at breakfast. So I had to skimp on the shortcomings of military justice during the Second World War and the brave black Mississippians whom Tyson terms the Mississippi underground. In light of this unknowing, even among enlightened artists and writers, uh, let me start this conversation by turning it over to Tim Tyson and then asking some questions. Well, this afternoon I, I, wrote, I got a few minutes and I thought I would jot down, down a little something about uh, my work to share with you. But I read a book last night and it's the only thing I could write about. I may have snuck in there somewhere, but I have to share this with you. Having walked through a cemetery far away and as close as Ken, John Weideman, in his words, has been wandering since in a limbo inhabited by the shades of men buried there. Writing to save a life is a powerful exploration of the shadows in that cemetery where justice is as silent as the 96 numbered stones in the rows of the nameless shadows of fathers who are there and fathers who are not there and sons who cannot speak. He is their voice and they could not have done better. This bird blows a blues history. Ralph Ellison writes, the blues is an impulse to keep the painful details and episodes of a brutal experience alive in one's aching consciousness to finger its jagged grain and to transcend it, not through the consolation of philosophy, but by squeezing from it a near tragic, near comic lyricism. As a form, the blues is an autobiographical chronicle of personal catastrophe expressed lyrically. This is John Weideman's eloquent writing to save a life. Weideman understands better than any historian the extent to which all history is a work of the imagination. There is often more silence than substance in the documents. Also, people are lying. <laughs> government documents? The whole point of a government document is to lie. That's why they are created. But anyway, don't get me started. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't do that. I can't blame you. Um, even when, as in my book, uh, The Blood of Emmett Till, there is abundant evidence, it always speaks in the language of that foreign country called the past. Nor does history happen in stories. We make sense of it by transforming the bloody marrow of life into stories that tell us who we are and from whence we have come, and we hope something of where we might be able to go. In writing to save a life, Weidman confronts documents arrayed like soldiers that wall off the truth and, truth and muffle its cries. He writes through that wall and lets the dead speak by the power of his deeply grounded imagination. These story, stories are as real as anything that ever happened. He draws dreamscapes of the platform of the city of New Orleans, the train, refuses to leave Emmett's mother, Mamie Bradley, alone there. For she was alone. Even with the hundreds she gathered, 
to see what America did to her boy, populating it with dreamers, in Whiteman's words, waiting for an Illinois Central train to arrive or depart, a platform lined with cardboard suitcases, ancient steamer trunks, duffel bags, shopping bags, string-tied bundles and cartons, colored girls carrying everything they own in a warm package they cradle in their arms. All of that dreaming and waiting, waiting, every shadow and echo and breath of those lives, dust and grit, somebody brooms away each morning from the station's concrete floor. He goes with Mamie to the trial in Mississippi, a perilous journey for both, no doubt. He walks the terror and fingers its jagged grain, and he hears her blues. No man or woman or chicken with a talking mouth can bring back my child, my sweet bow gone. They killed my baby. If Weidman has to face the shadows alone, his characters do not. Through his power to go where documents alone cannot take you, he survives the passage across, uh, in his words, the sea upon which facts float. Weidman deciphers the documents as well as any historian could, but he understands them on a deeper level. As he writes, the till file works the way any good old-fashioned novel works. It may sprawl all over the known world, but by the final scene, the plots resolved, accounts settled, order restored, characters receive their just desserts, which means someone, somebody's been telling a story. Somebody's been in control. Then the story's over, ending the only way it could, the way it was supposed to end from the first word, first page. The file irreversible, an unwavering witness, stories finished and I'm left out. Take it or leave it. Nowhere to hide. His is the history, his and yours and mine, that remains forever. He writes, a, a vanished city erased by war or flood or fire or earthquake, or many cities collapsed atop one another over the centuries, buried under miles and miles of sand. This is as good a description honest description of the historian's dilemma, as I know, and it sits in a blues that, going back to steal from Ellison, keeps the painful details and episodes of a brutal experience alive in one's aching consciousness, and fingers its jagged grain, and transcends it not through the consolation of philosophy, but by squeezing from it a near-tragic, near-comic lyricism. This matchless classic blues is an autobiographical chronicle of personal catastrophe expressed lyrically, such as John Weidman's writing to save a life. The life he saves could be your own. Thank you. Uh, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. And, and, yeah. Thank uh, you. You know, we do this stuff and we don't know what's going to happen. We get up in the morning. In my case, a whole lot of mornings. Uh, and, and some mornings, the words come, sometimes they don't. Uh, but it's that, that uncertainty that, that keeps me going, that draws me back 
again and again. And it's not the same thing, but it's somewhat like the attraction of playing basketball. Why I loved it so much, love it now, miss it. Oh, I still have a Jones uh, because I've given it up. You never know what's going to happen. You sort of know, but you don't know. And you, you, you but what, what you can anticipate is that all the choices matter. Somehow, somehow they matter. And you couldn't definitively sketch out why, but you're in the right place. When the, when the heat and the game is on, you know you're in the right place. You know there's not necessarily a better place. There is no result being recorded. There's no one uh, keeping score except the players on the court. You can't really depend on them. You better pay attention because somehow, sometimes they run the numbers on you. But uh, the score in terms of points doesn't even matter. It's the play. It's the luxury, the privilege, the richness of the play that, that is the attraction. You don't know where it's going, where the result's going. It doesn't matter on the good mornings. Some mornings, uh, well, I have a note, I have a note, I keep notebooks. And I have more than one notebook that uh, has a date at the top of it. And supposedly the writing follows, but nothing follows. And some mornings I might draw a picture, and that's it. I can't get further than that. But I have to draw the picture. Because there I am, I'm in that space, and I have to, I have to live with myself, and I don't want to close. I don't want that space to close up on me, and so I want to have a creative response to what the information that's coming in. If it's not coming through the books, maybe it's coming through the light. I used to live in Maine in the summer and sit out on a dock and. A very, very beautiful place, a quiet place. I even had two moose, or one adult moose and one little baby moose walk up on me one morning. They didn't see me. They scared the crap out of me, and I, I guess I scared. But anyways, that quiet. You never know what's going to happen, but uh, sometimes you just have to draw a picture. And I think my writing at times is just drawing pictures, uh, the word pictures. And, and that, that, that's fun. That's fun, too. Um, I, I read, I was sent Tim's book because somebody knew I was writing about Till. And I thought, well, you'll want to read this and write a blurb for it, and blah, blah, blah. That's how the industry works. Um, and I had been thinking a lot, studying a lot, gained a lot of, and had, had a lot of information about that time and that place and the Till trial. And so I, in a way I was thinking, do I really want to do this? Do I want to read another book? And I, if I read it, I'll probably read it with little attention because I think I know more. I, I, I'm probably wrong, but you know, that, that deja vu. But then uh, I learned the story that uh, Tim had written a book, or Tim had grown up in the South, and while he was an 11-year-old boy, there had been a murder in his community. Two of his neighbors, white men, uh, killed a black boy brutally, uh, no reason, uh, or plenty of reasons. Mm -hmm. But the boy was dead, the men were not tried, or they were tried and they were freed. And it was a communal acceptance of the crime, which turns it into, in terms of, it turns it into a lynching. 
in a, in a certain vernacular, certain way of seeing these things. And then my attention and my interest in his book uh, perked up, and he, uh, I, I do him the favor or return the favor of reading some of his words. And I, I knew I wanted to read the book and pay attention to it when I, when I read this. Uh, a son of the South and a min and son of a minister, I've sat in countless such living rooms. He's talking about being in the living room of Carolyn Bryant, the wife of one of the killers of Lewis Till. A son of the South and a son of a minister, I've sat in countless such living rooms that have been cleaned for guests. Sunday clothes on, an unspoken deference, running young to old, men to women, and very often dark skin to light. As a historian, I've collected a lot of oral histories in the South and across all manner of social lines. Manners matter a great deal, and the personal questions that oral history requires are sometimes delicate. I was comfortable with the setting, but rattled by her revelation, and I struggled to phrase my next question. If that part was not true, I asked, what did happen that evening, decades earlier? I want to tell you, she said. Honestly, I just don't remember. It was 50 years ago. You tell these stories for so long, they seem true. But that part is not true. Historians have long known about the complex reliability of oral history, of virtually all historical sources, for that matter and the malleability of human memory, and her confession was in part a reflection of that. What does it mean when you remember something that you know never happened? She had pondered that question for many years, but never allowed in public or in an interview. When she finally told me the story of her life and starkly different and larger tales of Emmett Till's death, it was the first time in half a century that she had uttered his name outside her family. Uh, I knew I was in the presence of something that uh, came from the same font, same sources uh, as my work, the things that drew, drew me to people's talk, drew me to stories, drew me to trying to understand who the hell I am. Thank you. So, John, you just about got to what I wanted to ask you. And it's about memory. Mm -hmm. Memory, how it influenced your writing and how in turn you might wish to influence it in your readers. This is a question for both of you, but I think you're on that theme already. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, and I could start by talking about reading. Uh, I started uh, jo Thomas Mann's uh, Joseph and His Brothers, mm -hmm. which is a, a story based on stories, based on memories, based on biblical traditions, based on uh, ineffable materials, essentially, that have been told and retold and, and untold uh, for centuries and centuries. Uh, and I, I started the book for just that reason, that here, one of the great writers ever, great prose writers ever, uh, I take that somewhat on faith because I don't read German, but uh, he's pretty good in English too. Uh, and and, and I, I just saw this great mind embarking on a sort of a voyage of, 
of sorts into the past, into the Bible. The Bible that uh, I heard when I was a kid in Pittsburgh. So suddenly there's, I'm kind of on a collision course. Here's Thomas Mann, a German, a man who escaped Nazism, who has written wonderful novels, who had let, left Germany because of political pressure and uh, threat and fear that his Jewish wife, I forget, maybe half Jewish wife, mm -hmm. was in mortal yeah, danger. Mm -hmm. So they had to get the hell out. But here's a man who was uh, fascinated by the stories that had fascinated me as a boy in Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the same way that I could, I, I related to what I read in the beginning of The Blood of Emmett Till by uh, Timothy Tyson, I had that sense of memory belonging to me, memory being so intimately mine, but the beauty of memory is it won't stand still. It's not in one place. It's as variable as the results of a basketball game, as variable as the possible potential in what one's going to write in the morning. Uh, history is this great sea, this great uh, dimension. We don't understand it. It's tied up with time. Uh, and I think if, if I were a critic, I'd say, and, and had nothing better to do than write about Weidman's work and what pull, pulls it together, I would say time. Mm. I would say it's, he's always talking about time, trying to figure out things about time. Uh, so memory, time, uh, constructing an identity. Uh, I'll stop. That's Tim, memory, time. When, uh, <clears throat> what I want to talk about is our memory of the Civil Rights Movement. I'll start, though, by, by uh, starting where, where uh, John Wyman just started, which is the summer I turned 11, and a boy that I played with every day told me about his... Uh, father and his two older brothers murdering Henry Marrow and then walking to school with my sister and seeing the every window downtown was broken and walking on the glass crunching under our feet and the men the state troopers on the every corner with their automatic shotguns and knowing that something crazy was had been unleashed and then uh, the young man who had been murdered was a Vietnam veteran. There were Vietnam veterans home at that in 1970. And as one of them told me, we weren't into that Martin Luther King shit. So downtown, it was a little tobacco market town. Downtown there were warehouses, you know, as big as a basketball gym, full of tobacco, a known flammable substance. And the fires were so big that you could see them 15 miles away and we were four blocks away. And it, Oxford burned in my memory a long time. We moved away. We went to Wilmington, and, and you, you know, I thought Oxford was kind of rough, but Wilmington was just much worse. We had a, uh, you know, without, I was one of the first generation of, of the people who went to the first fully, full-blown integrated schools. 
It was violent. There was a group called the Rights of White People that met in the park across the street from the school I attended that had you know, Confederate flags and military weapons. The, uh, anyway, it was a little race war that I grew up in. And I remember when I started learning in school about the Civil Rights Movement, and I thought, wow, that would be great, you know, if, if I had only lived in somewhere that, you know, where, that was, you know, sort of morally clear, you know, and pristine, you know, like, like Birmingham. <laughs> somewhere nonviolent, you know. <laughs> so, you know, uh, what our memory of the Civil Rights Movement is that it was successful and that you know, America won, that, that, that there was a, uh, that Dr. King and the nonviolent civil rights movement called America to her conscience, and she was a call she answered, and then the walls came tumbling down. But really, the enemies of the civil rights movement ascended to power. Martin Luther King got turned into black Santa Claus. They just wanted everybody to be nice to everybody, didn't confront power, you know, uh, at all, but just I ask politely, uh, and of course, uh, if you ask nicely, America will give you what you want, as we well know. So, um, the my memory trying to untangle those things made me a historian, and then uh, so I, when I was a freshman in college, I, one of the first things I did was I heard. Uh, William Chafe give a give a talk about oral history, which apparently was going to talk to people who had been involved. So I, I with no training whatsoever, I went to Radio Shack, got a tape recorder, and went to Oxford to ask Robert Teal, the father of my friend, why they had killed Henry Mara, and what did he think about it now? And uh, he wouldn't talk to me for a long time, mm -hmm. but. Uh, I decided to stay around to the barber shop uh, because I wanted to just at least be able to describe him for my paper and uh, or whatever I was doing. And and uh, my friend Gerald walked in and he said, Tim Tyson, you know, and it was old home week. And so that way, Mr. Teal knew that I was who I said I was. I was white. I talked with a, the, the familiar accent. I, Apparently was friends with his son. He reached over and turned on my tape recorder and said, that nigger committed suicide coming in my store wanting to four-letter word my daughter-in-law. And that's what set me off on this. And you can see, I didn't plan to write a book on Emmett Till. Um, somebody, a nice woman called me on the phone to tell me how much she liked Blood Done Sign My Name, which is the history sort of memoir that tells about that murder and the what followed and race in America. And uh, she she said, you know, how much she had liked it. And, you know, it's, I was polite as, you know, as my mama said, be sweet. You know, so I, I was polite, but I was getting off the phone, which she could hear. And she said, well, you know, actually, you know, I gave your book to my mother-in-law for Christmas and she really liked it. And we'd like to talk to you and have a cup of coffee next week. And I pretended she hadn't said that in my, and, and was getting off the phone. And then she said, she heard and then said, well, you know, you might know about my mother-in-law. Her name was Carolyn Bryant. Well, you know, I'm a historian of the civil rights movement, U.S. in the 20th mm. century, the South, 
uh, every, like everybody of that description, I know that Carolyn Bryant hadn't muttered a word about what happened to Emmett Till since 1955. And uh, people try, have, you know, many people had tried to find her, and those who did had no luck. And uh, so I allowed us how I might be able to work that in my schedule. <laughs> um, the what, and then this interesting uh, experience of interviewing her. I had no intention, by the way, to write. I was working on another book, and I, didn't, I all I was going to do was interview her. You know, I'm a historian; it's my job. I'm going to interview her. I'm going to put it in the archive. Some historian is going to love me to pieces when they <laughs> find this. But I'm, you know, it's not the book I'm working on, and I had no, and I thought it, may, it might be sort of well-traveled ground, too. And then I went to prepare for the interview, and there actually, there were ballads and songs and novels and, and you know, poems and all manner of things. But there was one little skinny little history book on the murder of Emmett Till. There was journalism, there was, you know, stuff, but one researched book, and it wasn't researched very much. It was sort of an essay. So uh, I thought, well, maybe there's a, you know, and then I talked to her, um, she, and she told me that story, which had that, uh, the piece that uh, John Weidman just referred to, where, you know, which in my brain raised the question of, what do you do when the thing you remember is a lie? You know it didn't happen. And I had documents, you know, historians, uh, you know, we're like bugs in the breakfast cereal. <laughs> you know, we're digging, we ruin everything with our digging, 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 you know. And we, we, so I had documents that showed that she had at one time did remember what had happened to her. And she had told her attorney, whose notes from the conversation I had, that uh, this young man had annoyed her. Really, it was the story of a man of a of a boy who was was rude. Really, that was about it. You know, there was no physical assault. There was no sexual anything. Uh, what she had testified to in court, which was basically an attempted rape, and what she that was the story that she had repeated until she believed it. But she knew that was bullshit. But and I knew it was bullshit. So, so began the work on Till. So, it's, you know, we write these things, uh, we research them, mm -hmm. and, but there's always a big chunk of us in there. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. People like to think about, we're, we've got to be objective in our blah, blah, blah. You know, we try to, we don't. Try not, we don't make stuff up, but well, we, it's, we, you're, you we, come out. We do, do the best we can. Yeah. We do the best we can. And um, let me speak as an artist for a second. Uh, one of the reasons I like making visual art is that I don't have to be faithful to the archive. I can make visual fiction, which I could not do as a historian. I could not pretend that the archive didn't exist. I couldn't deform it or, or misrepresent it or leave it out, which I can do as a visual artist. Um, John, as a novelist, you have written elsewhere and also in this book very eloquently about 
what we can and can't know as truths? For me, uh, it was very hard to uh, give up this book and have it marketed as either fiction or nonfiction, history, autobiography, novel. And I still, uh, I still say whatever title it has or whatever genre it was fit into is a marriage of convenience. A publisher can't, uh, can't, the publisher, a publisher has to say it's a novel or it's autobiography or it's history or it's whatever. Um, but I don't believe, I don't believe those distinctions. I believe Chinua Achebe, who I uh, quoted more than once in the book, uh, all stories are true. That's an Ibu proverb, and uh, I was fortunate enough to know Chinua and hear him say that, and of course read everything I could get of his. And uh, it's a worldview. It's a worldview that's I feel much more comfortable within the parameters that that sets, because it doesn't exactly set parameters. Uh, if you believe that human beings uh, are consist of A, B, C, and D, and you're pretty goddamn sure of that, and you, you form a definition of humanity based on that A, B, C, and D, then you're going to treat people a certain way. You are going to uh, be stuck in whatever cage you put around other people, which also fits around you. And the Ibu uh, resist that. They have, in, in all of their arts, uh, as far as I know, uh, a kind of fluidity, a flexibility. And this is endemic to West African mythology and art. And it, it, it has something, all right, okay, there are some super, super powers, and they have wishes somewhat like the Greek gods. They have appetites, wishes, because that's the only that's the only way human beings can kind of conceive them, or one way we can conceive of them. So you grant that. And you think, well, they exchange messages. They have ideas. They may be in the middle of a war, or one wants something, or both of them wants the same turtle, or the same woman, or the same whatever. But in the process of their negotiations, they might get someone to carry a message down to the other world, the, the world that those humans live in, and uh, have their will sort of enacted through this message. But in, in the African mythology and, 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 and uh, religion, if you will, those messages are always up for grabs. The messenger may change it. The language of the message may be mysterious. The language of the message may be uh, itself a sort of mystery that takes uh, training and uh, special voices and dance and sacrifice and costume to get at that message. So in that sense, Achebe's message resonated with me because it suggested that truth is always up for grabs. Truth is something we are always fighting for and contesting, and it will never end. The search itself kind of makes sure that there is truth. So if you live in a tall building in New York City, 
and believe that somehow the truth comes to you directly and that your responsibility as a chief executive of this country is to just, like Louis XIV, have these levees, walk down the stairs and share with people the revealed truth, mm. then you are probably not only insane, but you are trying you are trying to create an insane world that freezes all this imminent power and change and flexibility, which is so fundamental mm. to the health of our lives and the health of our understanding. And so memory is always up for grabs. Well, we're, not, we're fighting for it. Historians, novelists, musicians, audiences, speakers. Not, I want to trouble this a little bit more, though. Um, the figure of maybe Mamie Till Bradley uh, figures much more heavily in Tim's book than in your book, though she does appear in your book as well. How do you put together what you've just said, and this is for you too, Tim, about truth and about um, Emmett Till's mother and her use of uh, the press and her decisions to to let the story be known in Chicago, not just let it die in Mississippi. Where is this truth or another truth with reference to Emmett Till's mother? At a certain level, uh, I, I was trying to metaphorically creep into politics. <laughs> You, and, you didn't and, metaphorically, and not, not you went subtly. into politics, yes. But um, <laughs> politics is a, is a sphere mm -hmm. that is, for me, uh, very transparent. It seems to have a kind of authenticity and it seems to be connected to uh, power, uh, but it, but it's also transparent, mm -hmm. and 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 I think some people have a gift, have a genius, for influencing uh, uh, what politics happens to be, the, the particular political configuration that, mm -hmm. that is in in place in a particular country, state, mm -hmm. uh, whatever. Uh, and I think uh, uh, Mamie Till had a kind of genius. And I would say, if, if I were trying to describe that genius, I would say that she did have a visit from powers that were much larger than her. Mm -hmm. And those kind of, uh, uh, those empowered her to get much larger than a historical woman in a historical place, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. uh, like uh, uh, the lady on the bus. Mm -hmm. You know, we all have Rosa that. We, we have a kind of mm -hmm. Rosa Parks. We mm -hmm. have a kind of power in us, mm -hmm. and uh, like in like the when the Loa, when a person is visited by the Loa, mm -hmm. when uh, uh, when we become we we manifest truths that we don't even are not beyond our ability to articulate. So. What she happened to do, she became something. She became something. Uh, and it was vested, what she became was vested with the power. The power of her experience as an African descended woman who had been born in the South, 
come to the north, married an African-descended man. All that stuff is contingent in a way, but it's not contingent. It is rooted in a reality, in a hyper-reality, in a, a time, uh, and memory has the power to evoke those things. So what she was remembering was all the terrible things that not only happened to her, but that were her cultural inheritance. Mm -hmm. And those empowered her. Mm -hmm. um, and I think politics at any stage, and, and, and I don't know, Tim, I'm, I'm sure you, I'm, I'm hoping you, you agree, the fascination about writing about the South in the 1950s is how simple it was mm. in a certain way. Mm. Mm. Uh, there, there was a fear in one group that another group was going to change their identity, change their sense of home, change the control they had over their lives. And that group who happened to, in power, which was white, saw that t that fear was manifested in, 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 first of all, sexually. Because we lived in a country, we still live in a country, uh, where power is, 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 is uh, divided, hierarchically divided by, by gender. Gender determines power. Uh, and, and the people in the South had a deep, deep understanding. And it manifested itself in so many different ways all the time that, hey, something's happening, something's changing. Mm. And it's, it's about, it, it's about uh, these foreigners, about these people who don't belong here in the first place. Okay, we brought them here, but we, we had a plan. Now they needed a plan, yes. And, 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 and yes. Here, here it is. It's coming apart. And it's bigger than us. It's bigger than them. How do we deal with it? That's where lying becomes so crucial. Yes. I mean, how do we deal with what's going on down the street in Trump Tower? Do we lie to ourselves? Well, of course, we have to lie to ourselves a little bit. Because it's just too damn scary. It's crazy. If yeah. we don't. That's right. Um, um, okay, let, let Tim have just like three words before, <laughs> before we open up. Uh-oh. I can't even order, order lunch in okay, three words. Okay, that's it. Lillian Smith wrote that the children of the South grew up on trembling earth. And when you look at what's going on, one of the shocking things to me about you know the 1950s in the South was to, I mean, to read the Jackson Daily News for the year 1955 is to live in terror about what will happen. Even though you know what happened, you're in terror as you read. You think, there's going to be a huge massacre. The, the Jackson Daily News on the front page is running an editorial threatening massive violence against the black community if the NAACP doesn't back off. Mm. The NAACP is filing these petitions to integrate the schools. They get dozens and sometimes hundreds of black parents to sign the petition, put their names on a piece of paper, saying they want their children to go to a white school, which is, you know, risk taking your life in your hands. Mm. And then uh, also they're pushing hard for the right to vote. Yes. Right? And those two things 
there's a, almost a war about. And when the white, when the Jackson Daily News threatens to launch, or that there will be the uh, uh, race war, the head of the NAACP says, well, if, if there's going to be violence, it's, there's not going to be just black people dying. That's quoted on the front page. I'm like, hey, yeah, like, stop, stop, stop. Like, this is not good. They're, the courage that uh, they knew their political environment better than I do, but the courage that they had uh, did make the earth tremble. The, and Mamie, my chapter on Mamie is called Mama Makes the Earth Tremble because she was a, she was a, she decided to take her broken heart and her personal agonies and turn them into a movement that would knock this system of which her son's murder was an inevitable byproduct mm. to knock that system down. She came back. We, we, everyone talks about her courage. That's important. She also immediately began dialing up the newspapers. A black woman in 1955, mm. just dialing up all the newspapers she knew about. Right? She got it. She knew about Black Chicago. She understood it. She knew that Black Chicago had accrued this strength over decades. That there was the Chicago Defender, the largest circulation Black newspaper in the country. That there was the uh, Johnson Publishing, which is Ebony and Jet, and about ten other national publications. That there were Black labor unions like the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. There were interracial labor unions like the United Packing House Workers of America and the Steel Workers. She knew that there were that the Dawson machine. It, which is a sub-machine to the, what would become the Daily Machine, was the most powerful black political organization in America, if not the world. And, uh, I mean, they had ditched uh, the previous mayor, and they had installed Richard Daly. Mm. I mean, they, this was no... And she took, knew all that, and she mobilized all that, and, then, and she described, she was ready to go anywhere, anytime, and talk about what they had done to her boy. And... It was a force, and it wasn't just courage. It was this amazing understanding of the power that she confronted. The cousins all, I mean, the, speaking of memory, the cousins all tell in their accounts of what happened at the store that they were standing around after Emmett Till came after the, out of the store, and out stalks Carolyn. She goes to the car and, and to get a pistol which in the South, you kind of know when somebody's going to the car to get a pistol. Something about the way they walk. She, you know, it's just like, that's a, And they, they said she's going to get a pistol even before she had it. And when she did that, Emmett whistled at her. <whistles> this was inside. They get in the car. Boo, 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 boo. They all say this happened, right? They, but Mamie knew that any narrative that included any sexual interest or really even bad manners mm. by Emmett Till turned it into justifiable homicide in the minds of white mm. people north mm. and south. Mm. And so she said, oh, he had a speech impediment, which was kind of a half-truth. He had had a speech impediment. His, he was talking pretty good in 1955, but uh, as near as I can tell. The, she said, and I told him if he couldn't get his words out to whistle. Well, that's bullshit, but it's brilliant, right? Because she was trying to turn this into something that was wouldn't destroy the thing, and it worked. I mean, this is just one of her little, you know, 
she's just brilliant. Good. And that, that Good. yeah, that's Good. the Good. thing we don't remember. So how are we doing for time? Three questions. Oh, dear. Okay. Not bad. One. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, I was interested in the discussion on memory and how things can become less true. Um, and I was wondering, as writers, how does revision factor into um, kind of things becoming maybe less true, but in order to get um, get closer to precision? So sort of like, I'm just thinking about the difference in drafts. From your first draft, you feel like you kind of abandoned something that felt more honest to get closer to the point you were trying to make. Um, and kind of like, how do the memories of those earlier things you were thinking or mm, mm. feeling kind of like play into your thoughts surrounding the work now? Okay. You want to think of There's palimpsest. Layers. Uh, when when you when I revise, uh, it's like there are a number of transparencies, uh, deep deep layer layers of them. Almost like those cities uh, that are buried under the sand uh, that Tim referred to in that I I referred to in the book. So there's this palimpsest the, these these layers. And the, when writing is new, when it's, when it's still on its way, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's moving, like I, like I contend the truth in memory does. And so there's a strange interaction. And that's why, that's why I insist, I think, that it's not about fact or non-fact. It's not about mm -hmm. truth or not truth. Mm -hmm. There is an energy. Each one of those scripts has a certain kind of integrity and a certain kind of blindness and a certain kind of tentativeness. And uh, one, if you write a lot, you can actually see how it's not that you're getting smarter or that you uh, are, are getting closer to the truth, but that things are literally changing as you attempt to make mm -hmm. sense of them. I mean, why did why did uh, 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 Carolyn Bryant, if Emmett didn't do anything but just insult her, why the hell would she feel the necessity to run out of the store and get a gun? Uh, she was revising. She was writing. She was putting together a narrative in her mind. And that narrative starts in such such a scary place for her that it that some of it makes sense and that some doesn't and by the time she got to that car opened got the gun then she's writing another story i'm gonna shoot this little black boy did he really do anything to me and she's still writing those stories she's still writing them when she met uh tim tyson you know Definitely. 40 years later so one one's writing takes on that kind of malleability that 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 sort of layered effect and you you, it, it, you don't know yes sir is uh, a um, thanks for taking my 
question and thank you for uh, speaking tonight. Um, my question is this. So the Civil Rights uh, March was a movement. And in 1955, <coughs> when uh, Emmett Till was murdered, um, the, the two you know, white guys that did it, you know, product of their environment, I guess, to some extent. Um, and I don't mean that in a, in a good way. I mean, you know, in a bad way. It was a bad place at that time for race relations. But was it progress at all that they were even brought to trial? Like, so in, in, in the movement, was there a time in our, our lives in recent history when, like for instance, Mr. Marrow, or maybe somebody shortly before Emmett, where the people who did the act, everybody knew who did it, but they weren't brought to trial? In did 1942, in the Mississippi Delta, two 14-year-old boys were lynched, brutally tortured and lynched. Uh, they. They, their body was photo, their bodies with the rope still around their necks were photographed. Uh, this, the New York Times reported this on page 26 and declined to use the photograph. Nobody gave a damn. The South was some exotic distant place where maybe terrible things happened. It, it, it served as a kind of foil. It made Chicago feel good about itself, white Chicago. Even though Chicago was more dangerous than Alabama, there were bombs going off all the time. Black people's houses, dozens of them houses bombed about racial, uh, you know. So, but that's not, that doesn't fit in the, you know, and neither does the black freedom movement, which doesn't start in Montgomery, you know. It doesn't start with the seamstress with the tired feet. You know, it. These are just stories, and, and uh, okay. yeah, the word progress I, I is dangerous. The word progress, <laughs> I think, is, is uh, inappropriate because that's already looking for consolation. That's already buying into a sense that, that human beings or societies do progress, which is problematic. Uh, who knows? Who knows? Uh, but it's a way of it's a way of getting ourselves off the hook. Uh, when we talk about somebody as a product of their environment uh, in America, well, the environment was an American environment. Those people paid taxes. Those people called themselves Americans. They they went to Cleveland. They went to uh, Iowa. They had relatives there, those places. Politi national politicians supposedly. This it's our environment. Uh, it's not a it's not a redneck environment. It's 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 the complexity of bunches and bunches of people that we are, we, us. If I want if I can leave one thing with you, uh, as as in this very for me very opportune moment to meet somebody who's working a sort of a slightly different side of the street I am, but many of the same issues. It's that. Uh, I am trying to make it quite clear in my book that the fact we don't have a collective memory of Emmett Till's father, 
and we have not we have not asked questions about him, and that he sort of doesn't fit in a even in a, mm -hmm. a very well researched book like the Blood of Emmett Till. The fact that, that that we are giving up that sense of continuity, we are mythologizing, we are orphaning uh, people of color, children of color. We're changing the whole notion in our own imaginations about what families are. And I, I would contend, and this I would contend that it may be impossible to be a black father in America, simply because the archetype for fatherhood is so embedded in non-colored stereotypes. Mm. Uh, that's a comp it's not a complicated state uh, statement to me, but I think that's a problem. And I want to make sure that nobody forgets that Emmett Till was a young man who was a product of a family. He had a mother, a father, and the fact that many of the same things occurred to the father mm. makes the Emmett Till story entirely a different story. Those palimpsests I'm talking, talking about. He's not an exception. He's our, our story. He's our son. He has been orphaned by certain political decisions that we have made. And the reason that his father was a different kind of father for him is not simply about those two individuals, but the ideas that we have inherited and that we pass on to our children about who are fathers and who's not, and who's responsible and who's in power and et cetera, et cetera. The connections, the simple word. I talk too much. The connection. I have to. I have to Go respond ahead. to this. Okay, the civil rights movement indubitably accomplished four things: Brown versus Board of Education, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and a new black sense of self in America. The Brown versus Board of Education. We're so proud. It's the, we must be the most proud of it. Is any of anything that is doesn't is not so. Any like the schools are being resegregated as fast as we can go, and high poverty, racially isolated schools do not work, and people don't give a damn. It's a. I'm. That's what we're fighting in North Carolina. Is we're fighting for Brown versus Board of Education and the Voting Rights mm -hmm. Act. You know, there's an assault on voting and on integration. So that leaves us with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, what I think is kind of, well, you know, never mind. Me and Herman <laughs> had a little collision with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, I'll spare you. It's a pretty good story. They doesn't work everywhere. Apparently the word hadn't gotten out. The, uh, but then that new black sense of self, that's the, we are living in the unfinished work of the black power movement. You know, we're not done with that, you know. When somebody thinks his life, you know, is sufficiently worthless to spend it on defending a street corner, I think that's white supremacy. I think there's a lot of internal. We haven't really stamping that out. Of of of. It's still there's still poison in the water, and we're in a moment. We're in a crisis in American democracy. It's mostly rooted in race, although there are other things. It's rooted in the politics of the other. It's rooted in a resentment and fear of the changes in the meaning of race in America 
and the meaning of gender in America, both of which cut to the heart of human identity. And uh, it, is, it, is, it is making the earth tremble. And the question is, and the thing that I think is most important about the Emmett Till story is not the, you know, the crucifixion. It's not the redneck Frankenstein and, and uh, the Southern horror movie story, which is, you know, has its place. But the real thing is, look what people did with what happened uh, when people take the thing that's most precious to you, you know, and butcher it. What do you do with that? And what they did with that was organize a movement to knock this shit down. Now, I want to ask you, what are we going to do? What are you going to do now? You know, it's, what are we going to do? That's a good place to stop. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Thanks again for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. Visit nypl.org for all of our programs. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Next week, Queer Histories of the Brooklyn Waterfront.